Welcome to the CEO-led sales podcast. Today, I'm having a conversation with Russell Yardley. Russell is the chairman of Algonquin Investments Proprietary Limited. He's a board member of the Australian Research Data Commons and is also on the board member of the Alana and Madeline Foundation, which I think would be a really interesting conversation, Russell. Yeah. Uh, Russell's spent a long time at IBM and that was fueling his marketing, sales and creativity part of his business. Russell joined IBM in 1978. After seven years, he was covering technology, management, and marketing. He created his first company, Decision Engineers, in 1985, and then he founded Applied Learning, and that merged with Decision Engineers, Acumen, and Acumentum. Uh, since selling Acumentum in 2007, he has spent time investing, chairing, and being a board member of ASX-listed companies, as well as several private companies, all with a special focus on IT or science commercialization. So welcome, Russell, to our, to our podcast series. Pleasure to be here, Andrew. That's fantastic. And so, Russell, when I contacted you, I had just finished reading a release from the Australian Institute of Company Directors around the, the slight change in focus from company directors being focusing on shareholder value to being encouraged to look at a broader spectrum of uh, focus to looking at stakeholder value. And I thought yeah. that'd be a wonderful conversation to have with you today. Yeah, look, it's something that's really quite central to the way I operate. And uh, some of it I think is fantastic and others makes me very angry. Yes, yes. You know, I, I don't like the virtue signaling stuff that goes on. Uh, and uh, But I do think that you can't operate a company if you don't have a social license, if you don't have acceptance and if you're not embraced by the community within which you operate. So, you know, certainly, you know, the old mantra that you just worry about profit and you just worry about shareholders is really short-term myopic thinking. Yes, and that's certainly evolved, hasn't it, from maybe... Yeah. 50 years ago, that could have well been the focus of some companies yeah. to today when we look at those greater social issues. And I'm really interesting to, to sort of explore further, you know, how do boards set their posture around where they will be sitting on those social issues? And how do they then link that into their day-to-day -day operations that, of course, the board isn't yeah. conducting day-to-day -day operations, but, you know, they, they create strategy for a CEO to implement and operationalise. How does that all mould yeah. in, in your opinion? Well, I think, you know, we're, we're all getting um, daily updates on the AGL situation with Mike Cannon-Brooks. Yes. And you've got the board and the chair of the board saying, you know, this is the objective, this is the strategic goals of AGL. And you've got Mike Cannon-Brooks saying, well, if we don't address climate change, there's not much point in having strategic goals because we're going to mess everything up. Yes. Right? And so where does the board sit? You know, if you, you, you want to know who the shareholders are of AGL, go and have a look at the share register. Yes. You can see who's on the register, why they're on the register. You can actually communicate to them. Um, but also you can think as the courts require us, directors need to actually understand what is beyond just the shareholders. For example, if uh, you are operating insolvently, 
right? The director must consider the creditor, right? You cannot just think about a decision to support the shareholders. The shareholder, yeah. And so when you look at that, well, what about reputation? And then you get to the Mike Cannon-Brooks situation of do we need to fix climate change? And so, you know, it gets, it, it, you know, it, it's complicated. Mm. It's, it's not, not binary. And if you look at Hain in the Banking Royal Commission, he said, you know, this is not a switch. It does, it's not just on and off. Um, you need to actually, as a, as a director, you need to act in good faith. You need to uh, be able to look after the best interests of the company as a whole. Uh, and you need to be able to, um, you know, conduct proper purpose. Is what you're doing what is expected of you? And the courts quite clearly say that, you know, you need to actually not o- operate in terms of in the mind of the court. You actually have to operate as a director as what a reasonable person with the knowledge, experience and position to be on the board. Um, what would a reasonable director consider across those things of good faith and best interest of the company and proper purpose. That's really interesting. And you mentioned something that I'd really like to talk more about, which was it's not a switch. And I think that's a really interesting position because on many issues, I think there is an underlying current in the community that it is a switch, that you can just change a decision, implement something, and then suddenly you've fixed something. But I think I'd like to explore with you an example perhaps um, of something that you do need to have many turns of a dial to achieve a, 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 a new direction, not just change yeah. a, a specific uh, requirement. I think you're getting right to the hub of it, and that is that we human beings have a really strong desire to oversimplify. Mm-hmm. Right? And uh, there's a great saying, by I understand, by a journalist, H.L. Uh, Mention, and in the 19th century in the United States, where he said, for every complex problem, there's an answer that is clear, simple, and wrong. <laughs> Mark Twain made a, wrote a similar sort of sentiment, and he put it down as simple, neat, and wrong. Right? And so when you're sitting on a board, you need to think about what are the different classes of problems that you've got to deal with as a professional. And what do we mean by a competent professional director? And, you know, uh, uh, Acumentum uh, and Applied Learning were very much involved in putting learning materials onto technology. And when you think about learning models, every person in a role starts off as unconsciously incompetent. Yes. They don't know what they don't know. They don't, you know, they don't know what skills they need that they, that they need to acquire. And then they become conscious of their incompetence. And working through that, they can consciously become competent until... You really can drive down the freeway, make phone calls, and look at the scenery. You are unconsciously competent. Right? And so when you think about a director, there are a lot of problems that you can get on top of that clearly are simple. But there are things like climate change. There's things like science commercialization. There's things like technology where you cannot afford that simplistic solution. And we've all heard, you know, those directors that, you know, they've read all the latest books and they read the, uh, you know, the, the, the short summaries of, of the modern fad strategies mm-hmm. and you never hear original idea come out of their mouths because they're always repeating what they think is the most, you know, supported, most admired, you know, virtue signalling type um, uh, contribution to the company. And, you know, when you look at technology, where how often do we hear people say, oh, you've got to put you know, the, the, the technology in the centre, you, know, you know, you've got to become, you know, e-centric. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I say well, when you're eccentric, you really are eccentric. Eccentric, yes. Right? And uh, I think that it's really important for directors to um, recognise that if you think about that learning model, we actually want to make the technology transparent. We want it to be, you know, just assume like we use electricity every day. You know, you don't want to have an electricity champion in your business. Sure. Right. You don't. You. Know, I. I don't think we any longer need technology champions in business. What we need is people who are unconsciously competent at using technology, make it disappear, make it transparent, mm-hmm. but to enable the corporation to be totally okay with using the very best technology, the very best tools. Um, and I think that's so important. And so when you get back to that decision-making framework, sure, there are simple problems that you can uh, identify. What are the patterns? You know, what are the formulas? You know, how do you want to process that? And it's, you can do that in a very unconsciously competent way, or most people can. But the complicated problems we face today, they are solvable, but they you need to really dig deep. You need yeah. to look at the evidence, you need to look at the formulas, and you need to think about, and complicated problems always have multiple solutions, and, you, and the board's got to be able to choose between them and choose knowingly between them. And, you know, in a number of, of, of my government appointments, I've been put on as the technology director of, yes. the, of a board. And one of the things that I've noticed was as soon as you're there as the technology man, you're sitting there and you're going, um, oh, okay, this is nice. And then along comes a technology problem and everyone turns around and says, Russell, what's what's the answer? What's the answer to this? And I say to them, I don't know. Mm. I mean, technology is a big field and I am a little bit expert in a few small areas, yes. but I'm not an expert yeah. at all yeah. in an awful lot of areas. But I can hold people's hand and go and investigate because I'm not afraid of investigating technology. So that second layer of complicated problems are solvable, but what about the things that are truly complex? The weather system is complex. Yes. Why? Because you cannot build a physics model of weather that comes up with the perfect answer with the perfect amount of data. Yeah. You can't collect the data sufficiently. You can't get it timely timely into the model and you can't process the model to get the answers you know, when I studied meteorology in, in, at Melbourne University in, in the 70s, which is how I got into computing, um, we could take 30 days and we could get a pretty good pass at tomorrow's weather. Uh, uh, yeah. You know, yeah. In 29 days history, uh, looking back, that weather forecast is not really it was, valuable. It was pretty poor. It was pretty poor, yes. <laughs> but it did say to us that we can do this. And today, our weather forecasts within an hour or two are not too bad, Yeah. right? So when you think about, you know, that, that problem of, of complex nature, you've got to make certain assumptions. You've got to actually, when you, and, and often because uh, IT systems are used by people, and people, let me tell you, are complex, mm-hmm. um, the behavior of people, you then, you, there's not a right answer. That's right. And so we tend to come up with a solution, implement it, and if it works, we do a bit more of it. If it doesn't work, we do less of it. And we keep nudging and, 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 and shifting and changing. And that's how we solve those complex problems. And the fourth le- level of problems are just the straight chaotic. That's it, right. We're chaos. Out, out, out of the blue. You know, yeah. when you look at the current state of the world we're in with, you know, the Ukraine war and, you know, with uh, North Korea firing missiles over South Korea, you know, we're, that's chaos. Yes. That's chaotic. Yes. 
and there's unknown unknowables. Yeah, and I think you know. this this is a really critical. We talked a bit about strategic planning prior to uh, starting this conversation, and those first three uh, categories of mm. problems you spoke about can be handled well in a strategic plan. They can be mm. envisaged, yep. they can be approached, they can have a time frame, they can have owners, they can have actions, yep. and they can have KPIs and those things. Your fourth class there, the chaotic problems, probably aren't generally covered by a strategic plan, but because you've got your first three covered by the strategic plan, that gives you the bandwidth to be able to approach those chaotic problems. And it'd be interesting to get your view on strategic planning uh, and how critical it is to boards to set the strategy and how how that, in your opinion, updates and, and the like to that. Yeah, look, I think the first thing I'd say about strategic planning is that um, it's a process of being match fit. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't go through the thought experiments, if you don't engage everybody, and and what was really interesting was that the Alana Madeline Foundation developed its five-year strategic plan in 2021. And we had to, it was during the lockdowns, yes. um, and we ended up involving the 93 people that were on the board, that were in the advisory boards, that were on the executive and staff and, and even some key volunteers. We'd never, ever involved a hundred percent of all of the stakeholders in the strategic planning process. Now, everybody wasn't involved in everything. And Sarah Davies, who's the CEO, did a magnificent job at looking at the technology. What can we do on mirror using mirror boards, you know, yeah. post-it note type things online? How do we use Zoom? How do we use breakout rooms and put six people together? How do we put 12 people together? How do we bring them back to talk to the plenary group? Yes. Of, you know, in, in one of them, I think there was only one of the meetings where all 93 people were on Zoom at the one time. And it worked. Wow. Wow. And I reflected after that process and thought, gee, you know, we couldn't have done that if we were do it, tried to do it face to face. Just would be impossible. Yes. But having gone through all of that process, we ended up getting, you know, the strategic plan and uh, a list of the big gets was just wonderful. You know, I, I felt so confident that these big gets were owned by everybody. And so when we look at strategic planning in the future, we're going to, in fact, incorporate face-to-face activity. We're not going to get rid of face-to-face activity, but we're never going to go back to where we used to do strategic planning. But what's the benefit of it? Not that we're trying, we're not trying to fortune tell. Mm-hmm. We're not trying to say, here's our strategic goal, here's our resources, and this is what's going to happen, and this is how we're going to respond. But having gone through all those thought experiments, when opportunity knocks, when shit happens, when you have to go and take that hill over there, you do know how to do it because you were aiming at a hill over there, over this other direction. Now you're just taking those resources, you're taking all that pre-thought planning and thinking, and then you can take the mountain. That's right. And it is. It's very easy to do the big arm waving or, in your terms, the fortune telling and say, this is what we want to achieve without breaking it down to the resources and all of the levels of commitment that you need underneath that. You then don't discover or you do discover it's possible. Um, If if you work out that you want to do something that you just don't have the resources to do, at least it's seen very early in the process. How do you think when boards come up against those decisions that were thought through, were adequately explored, were implemented by the right people, but just don't work. What's the process there mm. for changing for changing that? You know, within you know, you have five year strategic plans. How are we going to change that within the within the time frame? Yeah, I think you you're really pointing at um, when you look at politics, yeah, and you look at political parties and parliaments, um, because we've made a promise at the election, or because we've said something publicly and it's on record. We can't change our mind. That would be a disaster. Mm. You know, we can't change our strategy. You know, and so 
we've seen in politics what is so destructive about that rigid thinking. And businesses need to uh, develop their strategic plan, but we really, you know, that, that overused word agile, you know, w- we really need to think about um, how do we, you know, strategic plans have to be dynamic, but they don't want to be um, bending like, you know, a branch in the breeze. You want to be very purposeful, but you do want to make sure that you are being disciplined and you're being competent as a t- strategic planner and ultimately as a strategic governor of an enterprise. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, the way that we do this, I think the, the technology industry is a great one to look at. Um, you know, when I joined IBM, I was very influenced by a lot of the big thinkers in IBM. And um, Fred um, Brooks, who was the manager of the um, project to build the 360 operating system, wrote a magnificent book called um, The Mythical Man Month. You know, uh, a wo- nine women can't make a baby in a month. Right, right. right? There are certain things that take nine months. Yes. And um, when you read that book, it talks about the importance of prototyping. So we're talking about a book written in 1966. Right. Right. And that whole thinking about how do you take on such a... Because the 360 was the first general purpose computer which created IBM. So when I joined them in 1978, it was then the most profitable company in the world. Mm -hmm. And it was because that was such a valuable tool for industry worldwide Mm -hmm. you know and um when you think about today we've evolved from that waterfall idea of highly specifying a product being able to to articulate exactly what we're going to build you then execute you build it and then you test it and then you deploy it you know and today looking back why did the agile process emerge because we realized that if we waited until we fully tested and we to deploy what we've actually built was built for what was right five years ago yes yeah and so in today's world we needed to be able to say well if we look at this system we're trying to build we can look at what is the most likely things to go wrong what are the things that we're the highest risk are that we're not sure how they're going to actually turn out and you can take a thin slither right through the project and say, let's just focus on this and we'll do it in two-week sprints and we'll manage it and rush to get to the end. Because if we get to the end and we find that this is a a no-go, we haven't built 100% of the system to find that out. That's right. Yeah. And so today, sure, we still use waterfall when it's appropriate, but not often. The Agile method now starts to build in some of those structures and thinking. And boards have to be able to do that too. Sure. And... You know, when you look at the model of thinking at a board level, um, Tricker uh, produced that very simple model of what's external to the board, what's internal to the company and to the board, and then what's compliance activity and what's uh, performance activity. And so if you think about compliance, you're tending to look in the rear vision mirror. You're looking at the things both internally and externally that are looking back have you done the right thing? Yeah, your right. tickets to yeah. trade. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. so it's very much looking backwards in the rear vision mirror. Um, but when you start to look at performance, you're, you're looking externally, what is you know, a, a really a global competitive advantage? Mm-hmm. And we've had a whole lot of businesses like you know, in protected markets like Australia where distance, we've, we talk about the tyranny of distance, but there's also the protection of distance. Yes. And so today, when you look at competitive advantage, you really need to worry about everybody in the world because anybody in the world can now come into Australia pretty easily. Yes. We're an open market. That's right. And just you know, calling yourself, we're Australian-made or we... No. Uh, it's, it's just that is not a competitive Correct. advantage at all. Yeah. Yes. And so 
um, when you look internally, you need to build the policies and the procedures and you know, make as many things automated and, and, and as accurate as possible. And, and so when you're looking at that sort of structure, um, how, how does the board respond to that? How, how do you really um, you know, take this strategic plan and how do you actually make sure that it produces the artefacts that can be used on a weekly basis, on yes. a daily basis, on yes. a weekly basis, on a monthly basis, on a quarterly basis? Um, have you actually thought through and created the tools that you, everybody needs to really, you know, to, to remain on, on game. Mm-hmm. And Ray Diallo, um, you know, talks about, you know, the, the dangers of boards in that situation of looking at the world as a board member thinks it should be. And that's really interesting. Right. And, and when you talked about the strategic planning process that the uh, Alana and Madeline F- mm. Foundation went through, where you had very broad uh, engagement with the stakeholders, yeah. um, you're not going to get the false lens. The, the broader you can engage, yeah. have you seen other boards engage as broadly as that? Or um, right that now, re- re- I would re- rate re- that as the best I've seen. Right. Yes. You know, yeah. and I just think it, it just was innovative. Um, I mean, one of the nice things about working for on the board of Alana Madeline is protecting children from violence. <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah. Yeah. you yeah. know the. The, yeah. the full purpose motivation. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody, those ninety-three people, everybody's heart was in the Everyone's right place. Everyone's going to spring out of bed right. to do that every every day. Yes. Now, you know, a lot of companies don't have that luxury. Yes, right. And so, um, you know, I think that, uh, and I do talk about because I use this as an example of over the last six months since we did it. I've used it as an example many times. Yeah. And um, I'm sure now that I'm seeing other companies starting to think, oh, gee, that's something I could do. Yeah. And by the way, the Alana Madeline, some of that came out of. Um, you know, I'm a member of the Australian Club, and during lockdown, we had Zoom's uh, wine tasting. Yes. Where the club sent out a whole lot of half bottles of wine, some superb wine. <laughs> and uh, we had 80 or 90 people on Zoom, and some of them were very, very knowledgeable about wine. Yes. Not just the Semillon and the, 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 the winemakers that presented and, and tasted the wines. But the actual attendees, yes. And again, that was probably an experience you couldn't do face-to-face. Yes. And I mentioned that to Sarah. Mm-hmm. That happened in 2020, and that encouraged her to think about how could we do strategic planning. So everybody's... Yeah, we all stand on the shoulders of giants. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. it's really interesting to see that we've had a lot of negative talk around COVID and around how the isolation <clears throat> affected people. There's also a lot of these very positive things that have yeah. come out of the way that we just had to change the model. And yeah. I, I find it funny when I talk, hear people say, oh, we now have a, have a hybrid model. And I go, well, it's not a hybrid model. It's this, the new model. This is the model. <laughs> <laughs> There's no such thing as hybrid here. This yeah. is the new model. Yeah. And, and I, th- I find it refreshing to hear those examples of yeah. changing the way that people were actually able to say we must achieve this outcome, yeah. i.e. we must take the hill, but I now no longer can use foot troops. I must yeah. do something different, and, the, and your yeah. wine-tasting example is no. great. And I think, you know, I love face-to-face meetings. Yes. You know, I love, like, sitting having a chat here now. Yes, yeah. But I've learned that if I have a Zoom first, as, as you and I did, yes. um, you can plan what you're going to do face-to-face. Totally. And you can do it much more efficiently online. Mm-hmm. And so I think that um, the way that we're working is going to change radically. Yeah. And so when you think again about the board in this situation, when you you know a board member has got to be able to uh, skate across the surface, you've got to be able to, in a sense, jet ski, right? You've got to jet ski. You want to whip around and cover as much 
yep. of, of the acreage of the ocean as possible in the space that you, you want to want to inspect. But every now and again, you see something that's worth stopping and scuba diving. Yes. Diving to the bottom to look at something. But if we keep thinking, oh, we've always got to scuba dive, we're always going to be on the bottom of the ocean and we'll never see what's going on. We won't see the big picture. We won't see the big picture. It's a, it's a really valid point in that, you know, you, both you and I travelled an hour or more to get here today. Um, and it would not have been as valuable if we hadn't done our mm. our Zoom conversation earlier on this week to sort out where we were going with this conversation. And and again, you know, to your scuba diving analogy, if this is just another tool in your tool bag, mm. and you pick the most appropriate one for the most appropriate mm. appropriate time. Mm. Um, what's your What's your advice or your your position? How do boards push themselves out of their comfort zone mm. to explore? different options on how to operate and, and, and particularly this stakeholder shareholder. How do they push themselves out mm. actively? Um, get away from uh, trying to do what everybody else is doing and being worrying about what other people think of them. Yes. Right. If you're really worrying about how, how good are you looking, mm-hmm. you will not be doing the right things. Yeah. My um, uh, daughter is studying a Master's of Philosophy in Paris, in France, in French. I mean, her, her challenge is mind-boggling. Yeah. <laughs> um, but she's really challenged me. Mm-hmm. And as she did her undergraduate degree in Paris as well, um, she shared with me Deleuze's theories and ideas. And there's a great quote that, that I got in one of the books that I put into Evernote. Um, Genuine thinking is a violent confrontation with reality, an involuntary rupture of established categories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Right. And directors constantly need to have the insights and the strength of character to be able to really rupture the established categories. Get off the course, yeah. And, you know, when you think about this current period, which, you know, really does make me very worried, Mm -hmm. I've never been more concerned. But when you think about it, um, real confrontation, wars, absolute disruption, is when we create wonderful things. My um, uh, f- most favourite film is The Third Man. Right, okay. And it was written by Graham Greene and it starred Orson Welles. And uh, there's a number of classic scenes in the movie, but one of them is when Orson Welles uh, and, uh, is at the top talking to his best friend from America who's come to find out what, where he's gone. And he's, Orson Welles is the nasty character. He's the bootlegger. And they go for a private conversation onto the Ferris wheel in Vienna. And they stop the Ferris wheel at the top. And to Graham Greene's chagrin, he hated the fact that the most memorised speech of Orson Welles, he did not write in the script. And I'll read it to you. So if you can picture Orson Welles at the top of that Ferris wheel. In Italy, for 30 years under the Borgias, they had warfare, terror, murder and bloodshed but they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love, they had 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. (laughs) Now, that's very unfair to the Swiss. That's right. But as with all great art, it magnifies a point and positions it in just a few words that if you really do want to produce you know, an extraordinary breakthrough, it's pain and suffering. Yes. You know, periods like we're in now are going to produce much greater change than, you know, what we've ever seen before. But I think that as the Banking World Commission showed, 
when the good times roll and people lose sight of their purpose and lose sight of their responsibilities, the Royal Commissions have to remind us. And I think that the um, Hain principles, and they're worth reading, you know, uh, first, obey the law. Mm. Second, don't mislead or deceive. Third, act fairly. Fourth, provide services that are fit for purpose. Fifth, deliver with reasonable care and skill, what mm-hmm. we were talking about earlier. Totally. Um, and six, when you're acting for an other, act in the best interest of that other. Right? And, and, and that is completely compatible to any business operation. Yeah. And so I think that boards really and board members need to really want to uncover things that are original, that really need to... Um, you make sure that those things that need to go right, go right. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, you know, when you look at it, culture trumps everything. But one of the points where I really disagreed with Hayne in the Royal Commission is he said, you know, boards are responsible for the culture of the organisation. Mm. Culture is emergent. Mm. How can someone be responsible for something that is so complex? It's almost, it's chaotic, right? Boards can set the perimeter. They can set the tone. They can lead from the top. But we need to be really careful because, uh, and Emily Durkheim, I think he said it really well, which is when laws are su- uh, sufficient, laws are unnecessary. Yeah. Right? When laws are insufficient, laws are unenforceable. And like all good judges, Hain uh, is saying the laws can fix the problem. Yeah. Right? And- and what he doesn't realise, because he's never run a practical business in his life, yes. Um, you know, if you really have to rely on the law because the culture's wrong, the laws are unenforceable. Absolutely, and, and culture, to your point, is mm. such a—it's it, such an overused word, yeah. much misunderstood. Yeah. I've worked in organisations where different floors in the same building had a different culture. Yes, and. The, that to me was one of yeah. the was the eye opening of a five level building, five different floors, different cultures on each floor, yeah. and that shows you know the, yeah. the difficultness. And I don't believe a board from their position mm. can affect that yeah. level three culture. Yeah, I think that when I reflect on board members and how you know what what do they really you know how do they add the most value to yeah. an organisation. It's because they really have a, a lifetime of experience that, that, you know, a board needs to bring a lot of skill and knowledge and expertise, but it's, it's those very difficult things around human behaviour and culture that's so important. And one of the things that I did when I sold my business in 2007 was that uh, I went through all my presentations and I'd used a lot of quotations over the years. Yes. And I looked at those quotations and I went, gee, you know, I, I've quoted Adam Smith a lot. <laughs> You know, I've quoted you know, uh, you know Fred Brooks a lot. Yes. Um, you know, and Oliver Wendell Holmes. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, you know, I've not read the book that those quotes came out of. And so, uh, over the last sixteen, seventeen years, I've made it a point to read those books. Yes. Yes. And back in about twenty eleven, I read Wealth of Nations, and I uh, went bloody hell. I think I understand a little bit of it, but I knew I didn't understand all of it. Right. Yep. And and I did a bit of searching, and I, I found um, a podcast by uh, a Stanford uh, and George Mason University economist, uh, Professor Russell Roberts, and he um, was running a, a book club on Adam Smith. And uh, he said, if you want to understand Wealth of Nations, you need to read Theory of Moral Sentiments. 
And Theory of Moral Sentiments was his first book. Right. He published that in 1759, and he republished it another four times during his life, and there was a sixth edition on his desk when he died, right? So he never felt he got Theory of Moral Sentiments right, but it's a brilliant book. Yes. And at the heart of it is that we human beings want to be loved and to be lovely. And when you look at Johnson's dictionary at the time, what he really meant was we want to be respected and we want to be respectful. Right. And so... When you look at the idea in Theory of Moral Sentiments, it's very much about having an independent observer in your mind to be a critique of your moral behaviour. So as you're being a director or you're being a manager or you're being an employee, everybody thinks about the decisions and the way they behave. And that helps us human beings behave in certain ways. And um, when you think about those behaviours, and you then apply them to the nation, wealth of nations, Mm -hmm. he came up with a slightly different idea, which is that, you know, the invisible hand, which is quite famous, you know, that that the psychology of human beings participating in an economy, that because we're somewhat similar, you know, our psychologies, we've got different personalities, but there's an overall influencing of the way that humans behave, um, and that encourages us to look after our own self-interest. And what Smith did, and he's often very much misinterpreted, because when he talks about you know, a, a buyer and a seller, he talks about having equal information. And when the buyer and seller have equal information, they will optimise to the best price. And often the criticisms of his capitalism were that um, you know, the, the buyer was you know, able to be a monopolist, mm-hmm. was able to have all of the information in this, and uh, sorry, the, the seller had all the information, but the buyer had very little. And so we need consumer protection laws. And so when you put those two ideas together, board members really need to understand the way economics works and the way in which they, the, the business they're in, works in society. But, you know, the socialist and the communist regimes that we've seen made very bad mistakes about thinking that they can control, control from central. human from, from that central yeah. idea. And there's a great uh, quote in Theory of Moral Sentiments talking about the man of systems, you know, the, you know and, and by the way, he's writing this before... Um, you know, in, in 1759, um, before Karl Marx and Engels in 1848 mm-hmm. and uh, Lenin at the end of the, the 19th century. Um, but he says, in anticipation of socialism, really, um, he seems to imagine that he can arrange different members of a great society with as much ease as the hand arranges the different pieces upon a chessboard, right? And later on, he goes on to say, you know, in the great chessboard of human society, every single piece has a principle of motion of its own. Yes, yes. And so I think that we really need to understand the way in which those people in our economy work with social media, with the way in which, um, you know, we now are so connected globally. But the board members need to be conscious of all of that and be able to recognise, is this a simple problem that we know the formula of two? Is this a complicated problem that we can go and talk to experts and we can actually arrive at a solution? Yes. Or is this a complex problem that we don't really know an absolute solution, but we can work towards it and we can nudge it and we can, you know, if it's successful, we do more review, of it. Review, nudge, yeah, review, et nudge, yeah. Or is this chaos where intuition and where uh, the wisdom of our leaders is really required and we need the church or we'll fight them on the beaches? Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah. So I think when you look at those things, um, you're really starting to see how, you know, how does... Um, how does a board 
remember, bring all of those things together. And ab- above it, all else, you know, you've got to be authentic. Yes. And, you know, Groucho Marx did say that, uh, you know, all you need in life to be successful is authenticity. And once you can fake that, you've got, <laughs> you've got it made. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's... <laughs> so, so, so keep that as a smile as in the background. Smile, a, yeah. But I think that would be my summary of, yes. of where, you know, where board members really need to go. Yeah. And so if you're feeling that, that people are you know, pushing a barrow because they want to get recognition, they want the box to be virtue ticked, mm-hmm. you're in the wrong place. Totally. Well, Russell, that's been a really interesting podcast. I think it's been very enlightening and we've covered a broad spectrum of of topics during it. Thank you very much for your time. And we'll also thank the, the pup that's been barking in the background there <laughs> as well during our, during our podcast. So, oh, people with, with on Zooms know all about dogs barking in the background. Kids running in the light, yeah. But thank you very much. Have a great day and um, look forward to chatting with you again soon. Been my Ta- pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. Ta-